<laughs> so you know how you get into the classroom and all your students are right where they need to be. Everyone is on grade level. Everyone enjoys learning. And of course, they love to read, right? <laughs> right. Welcome to the podcast. This is Teach, Hustle, Inspire, the podcast that's all about ways to help you absolutely flourish in the classroom. Teach, unlock intellectual treasure. Hustle, can't stop learning, won't stop learning. Inspire, spread love and light. Greetings and salutations. I am your host, Dr. Sean Woodley, and welcome to episode one of Teach, Hustle, Inspire. Formerly known as the Urban and Educating Podcast, this is the weekly educators podcast that brings you the best classroom management, student engagement, and educator lifestyle strategies helping you live your best life as a game-changing educator. We go to college, study hard for four years or more, walk into the classroom with this fire in our eyes and... And we are ready to teach. We're ready to change and mold lives. The perfect classroom, all your students are right where they need to be. Everybody's on grade level. Everybody really enjoys and loves to learn. And of course, everybody loves reading. And that's in a perfect world. When in actuality, everybody's all over the place. Some students are ahead. Some are right where they need to be. And some are well below where they need to be. What can you do? You became an educator because you believe that the children are our future and we need to teach them well. But what do you do in circumstances like this where some are here, some are there, and some are everywhere? Especially when it comes to topics like reading. And if the children already don't have that that desire and that love and that passion for reading like you or I might have, how do you get them? To develop that passion? How do you get them to learn these competencies and these and these standards and objectives that you're trying to get them to learn? Situations like this are tough because you not only have to get them to certain levels and you have certain expectations for their reading and comprehension, but to, to do that in the first place, you have to get them to even want to read and to want to learn the material. We try different things in the classroom. We try different things to get to ignite that fire in them, to get them to want to learn the subject matter. We bribe, we convince, and something may work temporarily, but it doesn't last. How can we really and truly ignite that passion in our and our students to really want to learn and desire to learn more and to want to try their hardest each and every day? And that's what we're talking about today. We're speaking with a dynamic educator in the New York City school system named Miss Erica Buddington. And she consistently gets her students excited about reading and all things English language arts related, which is extremely commendable. I wanted to find out a little more about Erica, who she is and what her educational background was and how she got started on this journey of fulfillment as an educator. Um, I am from uh, Brooklyn, New York, also Uniondale, New York, which is on Long Island. For those that aren't familiar, I guess my life has been split between those two places. Um, 
I went to school, Hampton University. What, oh, I'm uh, sorry, what school? I went to Hampton University. There we go. Yes. Uh, by Ogre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I went to NYU after that um, for creative writing. And uh, right now I'm working as a sixth grade ELA teacher, as well as a social justice curriculum lead for Dr. Perry and um, Sean P. Diddy Combs New School. And I also own a company called Langston League that designs um, equitable and create uh, culturally relevant curriculum for children of color. So that's what I'm working on right now. Awesome. Re- really heavy in these educational streets. And I absolutely love it. I, I really, really Finding out some more about so Erica, so I was able to uncover that she went into college with absolutely no plans to be a classroom educator. Um, so I asked her, you know, how, how did that unfold and what transpired? What what changed to help you switch your major and your career trajectory ultimately to get into the classroom? I went to Hampton and I was actually um, at the journalism school mm-hmm. at Scripps. And my first year there, I remember thinking that, you know, I wanted to write. I didn't want to write it from a neutral perspective. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write my opinion all the time. I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to write memoir. There were all these different um, genres I was experimenting with. And so a friend of mine suggested that I, you know, go to the English department. And I'll never forget, it was a really, um, I'm not going to say names, but it was Mm -hmm. a really perfect moment in my life where I went to hand in the paperwork to switch majors and I had to get signed by certain folks at the School of Journalism. And as I'm walking out with the signature, I heard... uh, this person say behind me to another colleague, well, you know, they all can't handle the school. You know, they're Mm -hmm. all not made to be writers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. So I'll never forget that. Mm -hmm. But I went to the English school. um, uh, I went to study English arts um, and I had literature courses with some really awesome professors, Professor Rand Walker being one of them. And I remember them always telling me that I had this knack for teaching because if anybody needed advice in class. Um, you know, if, uh, there was a younger, um, student there that was struggling with their creative work or, um, their analyzation of the literature, mm-hmm. I was always, Hey, I can help you. Like, what do you need? And so when the opportunity was finally offered to me my junior year to work with, um, a group called Bella girls out in Hampton, which is, they serve young women that are coming out of uh, group homes or juvenile detention centers, trying to make the transition back into, you know, going back to school. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I started working with them, that was it. Like I was completely sucked in. And then I realized that all my professors were, were right about me. And so, um, you know, I went from just playing around with the idea to Mm -hmm. actually doing this work every single day since the first day I stepped into teaching formally. Um, I got, I left, Hampton and I substitute, I was a substitute for about a year. And after a year, Harlem Children's Zone called me up and my career trajectory just shot up (laughs) from that point. Yeah. I found Erica's story to be fascinating, if nothing else, because it reminded me a lot of my own. And I wanted to dig a little deeper. So I, I, I asked her, you know, when did she start to notice that there was uh, an, an issue and, and what did she do to to solve the problem? Um, well, when I first entered uh, the world of teaching, 
a lot of the texts that were given to my students were not reflective of who they were. Mm-hmm. So um, we're reading Maniac McGee, we're reading Percy Jackson, we're reading Harry Potter. And although they're great texts with some fantastical elements and some youthful things that they can correlate with, it wasn't who they were. They couldn't mm-hmm. see themselves in the book. And I, I'll never forget, um, you know, my my mother always tells this story whenever she you know, beams with pride. My daughter's an educator <laughs> um, that I used to bring my books to her and say, mommy, I'm not in story. And she didn't understand what I meant until mm-hmm. she was walking down the block one day and she passed a, an African-American bookstore and all of the, the children's books had little brown, black boys and girls on the cover. And so she ended up bringing me home one of uh, Nikki Giovanni's uh, collection of poetry and I think another poetry book called uh, Make a Joyful Noise with tons of black children on the front cover and one in particular had little girl with afro puffs and like gap teeth and that's exactly <laughs> how I looked at that age and so I, I ran she, she gave it to me and I like ran around the house like mommy I'm on the cover I'm yeah. in the book right and so she finally understood what I meant and so um, I had that epiphany as I was teaching at Harlem Children's Zone my first and second year um, you know I remember there were young men who were like, I don't read. Like, I'm not reading this. This, mm-hmm. is not, this is not what I do. And I didn't know how to get them invested in what we were working on. Um, and there was a young man in particular who was a, like, a famous doodler. When he was supposed to be writing his work, he was he was doodling. A famous doodler. And, uh, <laughs> we, we've all had yeah. those. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, we can't get him to do anything but draw. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed that um, he did have some, he, he, no, he had talent. Right? Mm-hmm. He, he was really amazing. And they were like, you know, you have really this really great connection with some of our young men and we'd love for you to come in and see if you can get through to him, you know, because you're a writer and, you know, um, he shows interest in creative writing, but he's not actually doing the work. And so um, I came and I spoke with him and I remember um, saying to him that I knew a young man who had the same issues that he did and, you know, had uh, he was going in and in and out of different schools and they were trying to get him into an alternative high school. And so you know, I gave him this whole spiel about a young Caribbean man like he was mm-hmm. that had these same issues that was going in and out of different schools. Um, and, you know, he's like, yeah, oh, he sounds like me. Like, tell me about what, what's his name? And I'm like, his name is Jean-Michel Basquiat. And he's like, oh, that's an <laughs> interesting <laughs> name. And I, I remember uh, bringing him Phoebe Hoban's A Quick Killing in Art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very intense text for a 15-year-old. Um, but he ate it up. Like he was obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh my God, this reminds me of like my relationship with my father. When I tell him I want to be an artist and you know, he's like, that's not lucrative. And it was just a really good conversation with a young man that was telling me I don't read. I'm mm-hmm. like, but, but, but look at you, you're reading. And he's like, yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I do read when it's something that I like. And I just kept bringing him books. Like I was <laughs> looking for everything that reflected his experience and just bringing it to him. And now he's the most avid reader that I know. And he goes to Pratt and he studies graphic design, you Mm -hmm, know? mm -hmm. And he was a kid. We couldn't get to pick up a pencil and do anything. (laughs) So it wasn't that he didn't read. He just didn't come across anything that maybe he could relate to or that would hold his interest. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's important that educators build that cultural competence, you know? Yes. Um, That they... Uh, teach cross-cultural or, or, or multicultural things because they're in that sort of setting, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to be black to do that. Let's be real. Absolutely, like, um, it's something that's definitely learned. It's something that I had to learn. You know, sure. I had to 
negate my privilege in several ways. I had two parents who were super invested in me that put me in all sorts of alternative and supplemental programming. So when I walk into a room and, you know, my 15 year olds aren't, aren't writing on the level that they should be. I can't say, well, at 15, I was writing this mm-hmm. way. Or I was reading this because I didn't have the same context that they had. So, I mean, to get back to your question, I had to learn that quickly. And within my third year, I was doing everything from, you know, creating rap songs for students to retain um, the difference between homonyms and, you know, different strategies that we're utilizing to create essays and short responses to, you know, bringing in new texts and fighting in those uh, beginning and end of year meetings that for these books. Like, Absolutely. Listen, <laughs> I'm trying to get these kids to read some Masada. I'm trying to, you know, you keep in your in your mission statements, you want to build empathetic citizens and you want to. You want kids to be aware of social justice and you want them to be activists, but the the curriculum does not embody that. And so um, I just became really obsessed with it. And then now it's, it's, it's naturally a part of what I do. Like the anecdotes just come out now mm-hmm. because I've been doing it so many years. So if we're talking about um, some of the civil unrest during Greece and its creation of societal structures and government, right? I'm talking about the, marginal, the marginalization of African-Americans and how you know, we uh, created a revolution the same way because we felt marginalized. And so did um, the folks in Greece, you know, that weren't a part of the caste system on, on, on a certain level. And so my students are, they weren't enamored with the work before. Mm-hmm. But when they hear that connection to a movement that they do know or someone that they do understand they or can someone identify that looks like with. Them, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, I get it, right? And so I'm always making those cross-cultural connection. Let me ask um, you a question. Yeah. You, you mentioned something. Uh, I found it very interesting and I actually had to go back and ask her to explain a little bit more because she said something that I myself could, could very much relate to about her privilege in the classroom and an assumption that I too had as an educator that I'm black. I'm teaching students that are mostly black. There's an instant connection, but that's Definitely not always the case. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about what she did in that particular instance once she came to that realization and how she was able to resolve that. Um, it's letting it's letting go all assumptions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I literally had to learn the context of every single student, mm-hmm. right? And that's not hard to do, right? A lot of folks like. I, there, I hear this comment all the time. I teach 112 or I teach 125 kids and how can I, you better learn it, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that's the only way you're going to be, become great at your job. And so as simple, how was your day? How are you doing? What's Absolutely. going on in your life? It's more than just the first day survey of what do you like to eat that you eventually throw in the garbage or what, what do you <laughs> enjoy doing at home? Like, you're, right? you're preaching no, now. You're preaching now. Yeah. It's, it's more than that first day survey. It's sure. an ongoing conversation with that community with that family, with that parent, and with that child, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have context, you can't build those bridges. And so the minute I got that context, I realized that I was a privileged jerk who was using my assumptions mm-hmm. within my teaching. And once I let those things go, it became a lot easier, right? And so if I can give a specific example, sure. Uh, there was a young man who came in every day and like, he got on my last nerves and I couldn't for the life of me understand. This is my first year teaching, mm-hmm. like how a child had been pushed through the ranks, like every single level 
that was like six grade levels behind. And every day it was like, I'm not writing and I'm not just throwing things on the floor. And I'm just, I'm not doing it. You can't make me. And I had no context. I was just like, oh, he's just rude. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I don't like him. And he gets on my nerves. And, and after a while, um, you know, with, talking to his mother every single day, um, I mean, at first I wasn't even making, the, I was just making the calls for negative things. Like, you know, he threw the book on the floor today. He wasn't doing, he, X, Y, Z, it was always something negative. And one day um, during a conference, she stood behind my desk and she's like, you know, you come into school every day with your suit on and, you know, you stand behind that desk, but you don't even ask us like what's going on or what's going on with him. And you don't have any context to my kid and how dare you. And in that moment, I was humbled because she was right. Mm-hmm. Like I've known her kid for about five, six months at this point. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't asked a thing about him. All I'd asked him was, where's my homework? Where's my this? Where's my that? Um, I didn't know anything about him. I knew his name. I knew how old he was. And I knew the services I was there to provide. That was about it. Um, and once I got to know him, right? And once I got to know mom and his circumstances, um, I was able to modify the curriculum in a way that, you know, better served him. And so like it, it, those, it's that privilege is those assumptions. And even, you know, I'm thinking like, I'm a black girl. Right. And, I can you know, relate. I listen to the same music as them. I'm 21. I'm young. I would mm-hmm. connect with kids. Absolutely not. And, like, and you know what? That's, that's, <laughs> that's such a valuable insight because I too, when in my first year of, of teaching, I went into the classroom and, and teaching in an urban area. And I went in with just this assumption that I'll automatically be able to relate to the kids just off GP because I'm a younger educator and because yep. I listen to the latest hip hop and I come into school and I know about the latest sneakers and fashion and things like that. Although I don't wear that to work, I know about it. So I automatically have that connection. They'll see that in me and they'll respect me automatically. And when I had that revelation, that rude awakening, I too, in your situation, was humbled and it took, uh, it took a lot of self-reflection. It took, it took the self-awareness for me to recognize that I had some improving to do uh, uh, and then to go back and say, all right, now, what do I need to change and how can I, as you mentioned, bridge that gap? So I think that's, that's, that's fabulous. It really is. Mm, thank you. So going back to equitable curriculum, what advice could you give someone who's teaching in a situation where the curriculum is not equitable? Hmm. Um, for me, I've been in that space and it's definitely an ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't be afraid to uh, speak up mm-hmm. when you're and, and usually they send out the reading list and they send out um, emails when they're deciding on books for students. Um, and I remember getting those emails and I would never say anything. I'd just be like, OK, thanks. Like, Right. But then a few years later, I started responding and Speaking saying, up. hey, mm-hmm. there are 322 books on this list for the library next year. And 10 of them are Walter Dean Myers and it seems like y'all don't know any black other black authors mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. or authors of color. Um, you know, we'd sit in staff meetings and folks, you know, they ask you, are there any questions or any suggestions? And folks get real quiet because they just want to get out of the staff meeting and go <laughs> do whatever classroom setup they have to do. 
you know, but now I started saying, well, hey, um, can I bring this teaching artist or can I have this poet come? You know, I started asking real questions in those spaces. Um, and it's better to do it in those spaces because when you ask them one on one, an administrator will tell you no. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Later on, they can say, oh, well, I, I mean, you know, it wasn't that I was saying no. If they change and flip the script. Right. But when you ask it in a communal space, oh, yeah. <laughs> in front of 12 other teachers, they're like, oh, OK, yeah, sure. And so <laughs> hey, remember when you said I could X, Y, Z in front of 12 other people, you know? They don't want to lessen staff morale. They're more likely to do it. And so you're doing it in a way that's not going to cost you your job. Right. <laughs> and and um, it encourages others to ask questions like that, too. Yeah, it does. And that's what I noticed. It, it did catch on. Mm-hmm. Right. I asked for a teaching artist to come in or it asked for a new book or anything in those communal spaces. And suddenly other teachers next week, it was like, oh, I have this friend um, who's a judge. And right now we're learning the Constitution. Can I bring her in? And mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. OK, now we're getting live. So, I mean, um, that's the first step. And then the second step is. And I'm going to say this <laughs> um, with a disclaimer that <laughs> if, if if you get fired doing this, like you chose it. It's like, on you. It's on you. It's on you. But sometimes you got to break and bend the rules. Right. And schools are all about data. And if the data shows that what you're doing is working. When it comes time to resign your contract or when it comes time to discuss next year, you can bring that data to the table Mm -hmm. and say, hey, what I was doing was working. And I know you didn't know I was doing it. Right. But here's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so ask asking for forgiveness instead of permission. Exactly. And so, I mean, it's like every year we there are certain schools that do this creativity symposium where you come come through with something you tried in your classroom. Um, that was within the parameters of whatever they said you could do. Um, but my creativity symposium used to be about whatever I wanted to do. Mm. And it was, it, it, sometimes it was having the students read more than one text at a time and not just pairing passages in, pre- in preparation for state tests, but pairing books, mm-hmm. right? So we're reading um, one nonfiction text and a fiction text together, or, you know, it was um, studying the constitution alongside the Black Panthers 10 point program and, you know, how one influenced the other um, and talking about laws and lists of amendments, et cetera. And so, you know, none of that was cleared and it had to be cleared by an instructional leader or um, a curriculum coach. None of it was cleared, mm. but it works. Hmm. And so when the data came out, it was like, oh, what were you doing? And I was like, well, now that well, you have. now that you're <laughs> the, let's <laughs> I got so that's you. my second uh, piece of advice. Yeah. switch it up a little bit so now i have some fun questions for you if you will awesome from your students perspective how would they describe miss buddington um okay i'm gonna actually use student language i have a a really awesome student his Mm -hmm. name is stan oh yeah my life with stan (laughs) (laughs) um and I'm I'm literally sitting in my room one day and I hear him standing outside. So they give the new students tours um, of the school. Mm -hmm. And there was a new student who was getting a tour from our office manager. And he asked Stan, like, you know, what's Miss Buddington's class like? You know, and Stan was like, yo, she's crazy, but she's lit. (laughs) 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 So, you know, it's it's an equilibrium. It's like, 
Like I don't play. They're well aware that I don't play. Oh yes. But I'm fun, mm-hmm. you know. And so. and they recognize that they're learning. Yes. yes. Indeed, indeed. All right. So, what was your worst moment in the classroom? Um, my worst moment in the classroom. Or as as a, as an educator, what was maybe something that's just it was maybe your lowest point as an educator, or just a just a terrible experience um so i think my worst moment in the classroom was there was one day that a young man um was missing and i noticed because he and i used to rap all the time like you know he come in the back of the room he's like yo the teachers is buzzing and they say you know you rap you do poetry (laughs) and i'm like yeah yeah you know a little bit and so he's like oh you got bars let's go and so like we go back and forth all the time after class. And so when he's disappeared for a week, mm. I was like, okay, <laughs> like, this is weird. We're calling home. Mom was like, I don't know where he's at. I don't care. Um, and I never forget. He walked in on like the fifth day of him being absent and, you know, sat down and he was in being himself. And I'm like, yo, what's up? Like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Like, where you been? And he's like, can we talk about it after class? I'm like, sure. So he like steps outside with me and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, Yo, I got shot four days ago, but I don't really want to talk about it. Mm. And it was like, like he said it like, you know, I, I slipped and fell and sprained yeah. my ankle. Like, like, I'm like, what? Like, and, you know, he, he just did not want to talk about it at all. And um, uh, I remember like going to the teacher's lounge on prep and just sitting there like, how, how do I coach him? Like, how do I have this conversation with him? Or how do I get him to open up? Mm-hmm. Right. Because it was very clear that he was hurting, like his spirit, like he's a really bright and energetic student. It was like dark that day. Mm. And so, um, you know, I had kind of coached myself as to how to talk to him. I went to the counselor and was like, okay, what do I say? And she kind of like helped me through it. Good move. I remember going back into the classroom to teach the next class and through the glass, I saw them arrest this kid Mm. and like in the hallway. And I was like, oh my God. Like that was my worst moment for me. Cause I didn't I never got to talk to him again. Like mm. I never I don't think it happened to him. Like, but for me, it was like the very real outside context that I was talking about earlier. Right. Make it into my classroom. Making it making it its way inside. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. now how does someone who goes through that bounce back and continue to move forward for the rest of your students? I mean, it's just like I said earlier. Right. It's about learning the context. I mean, that was earlier on in my teaching days. So it was like, yeah, he would come in the back of the classroom, we rap and joke here and there. But I really didn't know much Mm -hmm. about him. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But now I can tell you what my kids eat, what time they get home, who their mamas are, like, you know, what their parents do for a living. I can tell you everything about Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) And that's because like I'm all up in their business. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Who's texting who? Who was at Dante's party last weekend? And who danced with who? Like, I know everything. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm all up in the tea because, you know, they need you to be. Like, they they say, like, stay out of my business. But re- real talk, they need you they to be. They need you. They need you. And, <laughs> so and you they, they want that. Advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> what advice would you give your first year teaching self? If you can um, go back right now, sit down next to yourself and say, you know what? This is what you need to know. What One, one piece of advice. I would tell her to roll her sleeves up. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like 
she walked in every day with this, oh, I got to look like a teacher, move like a teacher, planner, organizer. Like none of that, none of that stuff matters, right? Uh What matters is that you rolled your sleeves up and you switch from your heels to your kicks and you went and play kickball with everybody. What matters is that you sat in the station instead of just walking around and aggressively monitoring, right? Mm-hmm. You sat in the station with the kids and you bounced from station to station and you acted like you were one of the kids and you jumped in on the project and, you know, pushed them forward. I would tell her to be more youth-centered in her teaching, like allow kids to be um, immersed in creating the curriculum with you, allow kids to uh, act crazy sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. let them let loose and dance on the tables and teach you the nay nay or whatever, right? <laughs> like all those things matter. The things that are not in the handbook, the things that are not in school, that, that no one teaches you, they matter just as much as the academic portion. Absolutely. That's what I would tell her. Could, couldn't agree with you more there. And, and finally, what's maybe one of the funniest things that happened to you in the classroom? Okay, this is a great question because <laughs> I have a young man um, named Stan, as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. in my class. And he's crazy. Like, like, I love him, but he's like insane. I think the funniest thing that's ever happened to me in the classroom was, um, you know, he has a, uh, what you call it? He has a way of saying things that are like really disrespectful in the moment. But then um, I'm trying to find the right way to say this. Like they're disrespectful in the moment. And you like, you're like, step outside. Like, you're, it's like, mm-hmm. this is not okay. I'm writing you up. But then you you think about it and you're like, yo, he's right. Like, <laughs> and, and, and you so, and you hate that. It's like, I'm, yeah, I'm it with drives you. me crazy. So um, there is a moment where a young man, another young man, um, these are not the students' real names, by the way. I, I know. Uh-huh. Marcus was like going in on him. Um, you know, he goes in on him every day. They go back and forth. So Marcus's grandfather is like a Trump supporter, got a Trump stick on his back, the back of his pickup truck, like all that jazz. And, you know, he's very immersed in that rhetoric, like give Trump a chance. And it's, it's so interesting because Stan is raised by a very liberal family. Mm-hmm. And so they go back and forth every day, all day. It's like watching CNN. And so, um, <laughs> you know, Marcus was saying that, uh, well, I, we were learning about the patricians and the uh, ple- uh, plebeians uh, in ancient Greece and they're going, I mean, ancient Rome, I apologize. And they're going back and forth about, you know, well, why, why wouldn't the wealth, why doesn't the wealthy class, why shouldn't the wealthy class make laws, right? They're, they're more intelligent the same way, you know, I'm more intelligent in this classroom. So that's Marcus. Uh-huh. And Stan is like, like, seriously, dude, like, uh-huh. like, this is not okay. We shouldn't marginalize folks. And they're having this really heated and amazing debate. And I was so excited about like this conversation that they're having. And, you know, eventually it, it, it got crazy. You know, um, you know, he said, Stan said something like, oh, I'm, trying to make real time connections in class and you try to connect with this fade. And, like, <laughs> and Marcus was like, you know, um, who are you talking to? So I was like, okay, Stan, please step outside. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Stan steps outside. And eventually, um, you know, he keeps, Marcus keeps going with his whole conversation of, you know, Patricia's were just wealthy. They were probably the smartest, et cetera. And he runs back in and he's like, yo, we live in the same building, Marcus. <laughs> Your mama's <laughs> a player. We all play. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> And so um, they keep me thoroughly entertained, thoroughly entertained. If you and if you want to read more of that, you can go to Facebook.com slash My Life With Stan. Uh, I let, tabs. let me be one to tell anybody that is not familiar with My Life With Stan that it is hilarious and entertaining, if nothing else. And I love each and every one of the stories. I feel like I know Stan. 
I've met my own stands, plural, <laughs> if you will. So I'm right there with you. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic that you're being, you know, so transparent with that. And you, you talk about the good and, and the bad that comes along with that. And it shows the, the learning and the growth of yourself as okay. an educator. I think it's fantastic. I appreciate that. So now going into, going into understanding the fact that life of an educator outside the classroom is just as important if not more and affects what happens in the classroom i asked erica a little bit about some of her extracurricular activities and and what she does and coincidentally it ties perfectly into what she does in the classroom and even generates some extra income for her well um i you know i write on a blog called if no one has told you.com and on if no one has told you dot com, I write flash fiction, which is short stories back to back once a week. And folks just kind of follow the story. And when it's done, I compile all of this flash fiction and turn them into like small novellas or novels and throw them up on Amazon. So that's kind of like income that's always coming in, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm working on a novel, you know, to shop with an agent. So. I'm really excited about that. And it's, it's difficult to do that and teach at the same time. Sure. Sure. Right. Which is why the great American novel took so long. But in the meantime, I've had the chance to write small novellas and short stories that have, you know, accrued me this really awesome crowd of young women who are just inspired or excited about work that connects with them, which speaks to, you know, the same equitable, culturally relevant. Right. right? It's it's all related. Absolutely. Exactly. So essentially, I'm doing that with my writing, too. And, um, I, I, and I'm an HBO deaf poet um, and a slam champion. So, you know, I perform on the weekends and, you know, I sell those books as a side hustle mm-hmm. when I'm at those performances. So, yeah, that's my writing side of me. And you can check out my books at ericabuddington.com slash books. Awesome. Awesome. What are the titles of, of those? So one is of Micah and Men, which is just a compilation of dating stories, really horrible dating <laughs> stories. Uh, one is Borrows Apart, which is a love story that goes back and forth between now and the Harlem Renaissance. Another one called Intention, which is like a love story triangle. And the last one is uh, F-Boy Literature. I'm not going to say what that stands for, but um, <laughs> it's a compilation of poems and um, essays about you know dealing with uh, just dating. And so I feel like they're all under the theme of love, I mean, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they're not romance novels. They're literature, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think, you know what, I think it's awesome that you're using your gifts and talents to share with your students inside the classroom, but then share them with the world outside of the classroom. And it's very, very obvious that you're passionate in this area, which is so needed on both ends. So I think that's fabulous and fantastic. Keep it up. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It is not a problem. Incredibly insightful information that is immediately applicable to what we need to do every day in the classroom as educators. I want to thank Miss Erica Buddington for her time and her contribution to this podcast because I know this information is extremely valuable and will help many, many great educators out there. Teach, Hustle, Inspire is hosted, designed, and produced by yours truly, Sean Woodley, Ph.D. Please share with someone, and while you're at it, hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss a single episode. And leave a review on iTunes because your opinion matters to me, and I'd love to know what you think. 
follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Woodley, spelled S-H-A-U-N-W-O-O-D-L-Y. I'm there almost every day and would love to engage with you. (laughs) Until next time. You know, research shows that we've reached a point in our schools where we can predict the academic success of a student based solely on that child's status as a minority and or being classified as socioeconomically disadvantaged. And as they struggle to help their minority or low SES students reach their full potential, many teachers suffer from high levels of stress and low levels of motivation, never truly finding a solution to help their students, inadvertently perpetuating the achievement gap. However, there is good news. There are many teachers who find success and thrive in these exact circumstances. Yes, a solution does exist. Programs designed to break down the barriers that limit our dedicated educators, allowing them to reach motivate and engage all of their students regardless of the challenges or circumstances. So I'm Jacqueline Jones, principal of Brentwood Elementary School of the Arts. What this workshop was able to do for my teachers was to give them specific strategies and ways that they can be creative, that they can ensure that engagement is happening, and at the same time ensure that students do not have distractions that will get in the way of their learning. For me, it was an opportunity to see where my teachers started from three years ago to where they're about to head. This year, we're moving full steam ahead, and Dr. Woodley's workshop has ensured that we have the tools and the thought patterns, the creativity, and the experience to make that happen. I am looking very forward to this year and to see what my teachers will do with this learning. Staff development and training that is proven, immediate, relevant, and most importantly, fun. Log on to SeanWoodley.com slash PD for details on professional development opportunities for your district or school.